Capo, and welcome to Hiding Behind the Music Stand. I'm your host, Patty Ryan, and with me is Francis Lee, who is a pianist and educator who holds a doctorate in piano performance from Rice University, and we'll be talking about the role of television and pop culture in her life. Welcome, Francis. Thanks for being here. Hi, Patty. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So we were just kind of shoved together in a chamber music group. We were playing the Walton Piano Quartet. Yeah, I think it's more that you were shoved into our group, <laughs> but yes. <laughs> well, because I was the new so, incoming masters, right. and you guys had you guys played together before no but we were planning to and we needed a cellist i see so that therefore hence i was sort of thrust into this group yes unfortunately with... for you perhaps <laughs> no but no yes. not at all <laughs> and so i think you invited me to go get dinner after a rehearsal or coaching or something like that and then yeah, that was... la madeleine yeah <laughs> and that was the what sparked our friendship i think so but i think also we gradually got to know each other through the chamber process too right was... because we ended up liking collaborating with each other a lot yeah and so then I would ask you to be on my recital as my personal pianist. Uh, How dare you? Yes. But, <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, I would, I would play on, played on your DMA chamber yes, music recital. True. So, so I mean, you were my personal partnership. Wasn't it? Yeah, okay, fine. If you insist. But yeah, no, it was great to collaborate. And I think we also realized that we care and commit the same amount. About, right. That it wasn't really just about trying to put it together, but really trying to build something together, which is a small but very important difference. Right. I think we both really appreciate the attention to detail with each piece that we collaborated with together. We maybe came from a very similar background of chamber music mm -hmm. preparation. And so I think that's what made us pretty magnetic. Plus, we really liked Boba. <laughs> so I have to talk about Fa Fuddy Fa. <laughs> this is actually like the Fa and Boba thing is veering into my funny story territory. Okay, so. well, this is perfect yeah. then. So at Shepherd School of Music, the main symphony orchestra, because there's two orchestras, but the main symphony orchestra would rehearse from two 210 to 440. To 440, right. And Francis is also a pianist in the orchestra at times. And then there's times whenever they needed a pianist. And oftentimes we'd want to hang out and grab some food together. So we'd always joke about at 444 would be pho, footy, pho. And then we'd mm -hmm. go and get pho together. It was either pho or ramen. We'd like switched it up. Yeah, um, but ramen doesn't go as well with numbers. Exactly. But, right. <laughs> but you're missing out the part where we also, well, I think it was me, but I think we both did it after a while typed out the letters for using the emoji for yeah. noodles. <laughs> It was a very good use of time. But when rehearsal ended, it gave me four minutes to go pack up, put my cello in my locker, and then meet Francis to get Fa Fodi Fa. Thank you, Simply Fa. Thank you, Fa Saigon. <laughs> Thank you, Jinya Ramen. There's many times that we were patrons, and we also wanted to take advantage, especially at Simply Fa, we wanted to take advantage of Mondays mm. because they had free iced tea. So we'd yeah. usually go on a Monday if we could. Or there was other promotionals on earlier days of the week too. But Yeah, there was an iced coffee one. I think on Tuesday. Right. Mm -hmm. But Shepard wasn't at the orchestra. But you don't was... drink iced coffee anyway. So that's, that's true. <laughs> and, and then the orchestra was only on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. So then mm -hmm. the Fa Fodi Fa only really worked after orchestra. Yeah, but you made it sound like we were neurotic enough that it had to be at that precise minute. <laughs> I think it was just the I concept. Mean, I, that of was it. Francis. I was trying to be on All time. Right. <laughs> But I also think to get back to like how we know each other, that it was a particularly interesting piece to be put together on because it's a the Walton. Yeah, I would like to plug the Walton Piano Quartet first of all. <laughs> it doesn't get anywhere near as much attention as it has, and I was very grateful that all three of you were happy to go on it with me because that was definitely my choice. But okay, yeah, the fact that it's not really part of the canon or not in the same way that Brahms and Schumann Piano Quartets are, that there was so much we had to discuss, and it was despite the fact that it borrows a lot from German and French 
music, but it was a very unique kind of piece with its own language and its own way of working. And it took us a lot more effort to try to discover it because we had less background in playing Walton. Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of journey together is not really the same as, well, I've heard the Brahms first piano quartet before. How do you want to play it? Well, I want to play it this way. It's, it wasn't right. that. It was really, we were all thrown into the barren landscape and trying to make our way out together. Totally. With the help and of John Kamara Parker was our yes. coach as well, who was a fantastic piano faculty at, and piano soloist, really. And also a great chamber coach who really made us aware of the ways we needed to interact with each other. Yeah. And especially helpful for me as a pianist. But mm -hmm. yeah, I was glad that we got together on that piece, not just that we played together. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So what's your funny story, Francis? So my funny story is, and my fondest memory of our friendship is that we had to one-up each other on Boba gift cards. Oh no. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I think it started either at $15 or $20. And then every time somebody had a birthday or had something to thank each other for, it would go up $5. But by the time we reached, was it 30 or 40 I don't even remember. I, it was a so ridiculous we had to start amount to of money. It back. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we got I... it back to a $1 increase. And then... <laughs> But the sad thing or good thing is that we actually did use it. Like right. it was, we went so often and then we would buy boba for each other anyway. So really all the money was essentially going to tea house, but, <laughs> but it was the gesture that mattered. Exactly. Right. We knew that we were going to get the boba regardless, but yeah, it was totally the gesture of which you, is exactly what you were just saying. And also I was so amused by the whole thing that I kept the sleeve that you put the gift card in. Oh, really? Yeah, one of them. I think the $35 one. But it was great. <laughs> so yes. <laughs> I mean, it's just an obscene amount of money for Boba, which I mean, these gift cards would last probably, well, now I'm like, maybe they lasted shorter than they probably. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Because we would, I would maybe go in and buy like three for myself and then maybe some of my friends or like you or something to like treat my friends or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, I was going to say that they probably lasted a couple months, but yeah, maybe they were shorter than that. I hope not. I <laughs> but it was definitely a point where I was waiting to go to a studio class or rehearsal or something and you just did like a drive-by where you just came by, gave me but went left. So <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely happening too. <laughs> Boba was a very essential part of my experience at Rice. I, I mean, I loved yeah. Boba before that, but I don't know what it was about Shepherd. But and I, you were lucky that you were there when it opened in Rice Village, or oh, after yeah, it opened in Rice Village. Totally. Cause... Oh well, actually, was I lucky because that just made it worse. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that in my first year at Rice. So I lived really near Rice Village, which was it was just right next to Rice University, and they hadn't opened a Boba store. And I think I was not the only person. All the Rice students want Boba, basically. Right. And so we were wondering for a long time why there wasn't one and then there was one but then it wasn't until that big train hit rice village as well that i think it became an essential part of our lives because <laughs> it was just like instead of fighting traffic for 15 minutes to then sit in line for another 15 minutes and then go back yeah. to campus it was probably about a 10 minute round trip situation like, yeah oh yeah i forgot we went to the other one before it yeah to rice village. the one that was in rice village was not in a good place to park right that's true it was a bit yeah. clunky in that way but then when tea house opened then it was a much better parking situation too. right and then if you really wanted good boba you'd go to kung fu tea which was a bigger commitment it was like okay we're getting the good stuff are you being so sponsored i wish <laughs> i mean i gave them a lot of money so i <laughs> that's true I over mean, the years I... I think they so kung fu tea and tea house and tea house <laughs> i actually always prefer tea house anyway i i think there are benefits to both of them oh, okay. i think kung fu tea has really great bubbles yes but that's... i think it costs too much for the amount that we drank that's very so. true <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, we were on a budget. Yeah, it was <laughs> a sustainability <laughs> issue, really. That's funny. All right, Francis, are you ready for some Spitfire questions? Am I ever? <laughs> it depends on what the questions are, aren't they? <laughs> or doesn't it depend? Anyway, yes, sure. Okay, I think you'll be fine. Mozart or Beethoven? Beethoven. Shostakovich or Prokofiev? Mm, Shostakovich. Netflix or video games? Netflix. Basil or cilantro? Cilantro. Yes. Okay. Harry Potter, Star Wars, or Lord of the Rings? Harry Potter. Symphony or chamber music? Chamber music. Yeah, that's true. Because I was like, what? well, because I, I panicked for a second because I was like, wait, have you played in Symphony? I'm like, okay, of course. Have I played? I know. That, I know. I'm sorry. I, that's why I was just like, of course. You yeah. just mentioned it like five minutes. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You even went with us on tour to Carnegie yes, Hall. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry, Francis. I put my apologies. Coffee or tea? Coffee. <gasps> Despite our boba talk? No, no, no. Boba is a separate thing. But There's that's a separate tea. part of my life. It's fine. <laughs> I feel betrayed. <laughs> I think it's a matter of essentialism. I can live without boba, but I can't live without coffee in the morning. You can live without boba. For... Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> Shall we end the podcast then? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, favorite practice room? Oh, I don't think I have one, honestly. Like room versus, because for us, practice room involves the piano too. Correct. Room versus piano is not the same thing. Correct. Like I have a favorite piano, but it's not my favorite room, so. Okay, which is, what's your favorite piano? And then which was your favorite room? Oh, my favorite piano is my piano, but I would rather practice in a soundproof room to myself. I'm trying to think if there is a favorite practice room because I don't think I ever found one that was soundproof enough. But there was a room that I, mean, I used a lot. <laughs> what are you playing? <laughs> Screw no, 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 it's just there was there was just issues with the acoustics. So like in one of the practice rooms, for some reason, you could hear very clearly two doors down, not next door, but two doors down. Oh, probably the vents. Maybe, but anyway, there was a specific room I used a lot for teaching. But I'm not sure if that considered a favorite practice room. Was this at Rice? Yeah, at Rice. Okay, it was on the cello one side of, or the one of the dungeon. Rooms. Oh, in the dungeon. Okay, yeah. yes, the dungeon, the organ yeah. dungeon, right? Piano dungeon. Oh, the specific... organ dungeon is below, but the piano. There are two floors to it. The organ practice rooms are on. Oh, you're right. Oh, I forgot about yeah. that. Okay, yeah. I don't think the pianist would call it an organ dungeon. <laughs> <laughs> no, right, because the organ yeah. dungeon is as, is on the first floor and the piano dungeon's on the second floor. The second. Right, anyway. Favorite professor shout-out? Damian Blattler, who was my thesis advisor and taught me more than half of what I know about theory. She's such an amazing person. Like, yes, in so, so many nice. ways. Yeah. Yeah. He comes to mind first because, yeah, the, my thesis was so recent and he really did make a big impact to what I know about music. But I think all my teachers, piano teachers in different ways, have impacted me a lot. Brian Conley for how much he put up with over the years. And I, I remember... I remember this still that like when we when I auditioned, he met with me after the audition to ask what I wanted to gain out of at this time that was my master's degree and like what I want how, how I wanted to grow as a pianist and what he felt like he could help with and he said that I don't remember how he worded it exactly but he wanted to make some things easier for me to play. There were some issues in my technique of basically tremendous inefficiency in how I was trying to produce sound and how I was trying to work with my technique mm -hmm. and he said that he wanted to inject greater ease to how I was doing all of that and he really succeeded in just such an amazing way and leading by example and also just the way he brought it out in me I thought that was really amazing to me that a teacher can follow through on his promise that clearly sure. yeah he's also such a goofy person oh my god there's so many funny stories about him <laughs> yeah he, it was never a dull moment <laughs> absolutely not never and a really great coach too I thought yes was, yes yeah. we did work with him a lot thank you Mr. Connolly <laughs>
<laughs> okay. But yes. Most transformative performance experience during my lecture recital on Fanny Hensel's music when I was an undergrad. Um, Do tell. So this was quite early in my exploration of her music. I mean, early relative to now. But I think I had never felt, but without meaning to say that I totally understood her or anybody can completely understand anyone without being themselves. But the fact that I had done this research, like translating her diaries and letters, and tried to find her voice through what she actually wrote and hearing her through her writings and then trying to discover this music and bring it to life and it was a work that people don't give enough attention to that don't perform enough and so I think all of that together that I was really uncovering who she was both in her music and her writing I think that was really meaningful to me and that I felt like I had some kind of secret knowledge of who she was as I was playing and to be able to bring that to an audience and I mean big shout out to my undergrad in college Bart College Conservatory of Music who gave me the most supportive environment I could have asked for mm -hmm. that all these people showed up like some from the German Studies Department some from the conservatory just friends who weren't necessarily pianists but who were there to support me and to learn more and to be able to play this stuff and bring my research both my academic research and my artistic research to such an appreciative and open audience was just such a meaningful experience to me and I think that was what really pushed me to continue exploring her music and lesser known composers mm -hmm. to continue not just developing as a pianist and right. performing musician but to increase what I could know in terms of history and theory and how important that can be as a performer even if just in your mentality mm -hmm. so yeah I think that was one of the most transformative experiences and then the second one was much more recent when I was doing my outreach work I did a an outreach project called She Wrote Music Too and I performed it at multiple locations but the one that really meant a lot to me was performing it at this residence for disadvantaged women who for various reasons were living in this place that gave them a place to live but also gave them classes to try to help them to find jobs and find work and things like that remind me especially after being in a music school for so long things like that remind me why we do it at all mm -hmm. and that it meant so much to them not all of them had the opportunity to go and see concerts but they were so engaged they got something out of it regardless of their background they asked a lot of questions both about the music and about my personal experience as a pianist and they were appreciative to the point that they wrote me a card like a thank you card afterwards to tell me how much it meant to them that's awesome yeah so I think those things are what continue to spur me on these projects that aren't just let me try to play better so I can get more concerts because I right. think reaching out to the community in these kind of new ways is a lot more meaningful to me personally. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that's where, if I may say, I think that mm. we're definitely seeing with the pandemic and with social justice that we are really redefining what it means to be a musician and to be mm. an artist. I hope we continue down this path of engaging with our communities and underrepresented represented people like a battered women's shelter, you know, mm -hmm. people that may heal from what we're doing, and we might learn something about them. It's not just a one way street. So. Mm -hmm. One of the residents, I think they had an art class or just kind of an art session. And it's really beautiful. She painted a piano keyboard with like multicolored things. But mm. her caption below also painted was music heals the soul. Yeah. And that's what it meant to her. And, and you're absolutely right. In this pandemic, I think people are turning to art for its many different qualities, right? It's not even just about escapism, right? But it's 
is about a reminder that there is more to life. I think that's what is and we sometimes forget, right? That there's a famous quote by C.S. Lewis, and I, I never remember what it is exactly, but that art doesn't provide you with sustenance, like physical sustenance. It reminds you why you search for it, right? It, it reminds you why you do all these things, regardless of your faiths and your beliefs, that like whether you believe that art is a reflection of something bigger or not, like just to get yourself out of the quotidian, out of the everyday to like reach to glimpse this other level, even for a moment, I think is what spurs us on. Well, certainly what we try to ourselves reach for as well in our artistry. Mm-hmm. I was also going to point out that personally, I live in Minneapolis and George Floyd passed away while I was here. And it was a really, really scary time, mm-hmm. of course, for all of us. And of course, something that needs to be addressed and is so late. This should have happened many, many years ago, but it's Absolutely. happening now and that's fine. Yeah. But, you know, as I walk through my community, I see all the graffiti that was happening from the riots in some of the very now famous places of where a lot of destruction was happening from the riots. Mm-hmm. But instead of actually either painting over them, artists have come around and mm-hmm. enhanced the message with their art. I, to me, is that's exactly quintessentially what we're trying to do, is mm-hmm. we're not trying to cover anything up. We're not trying to pretend it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. We're trying to bring more focus to it. And also to use, maybe use this on the right word, but to explore through art what mm-hmm. this means, right? Because totally. it lets you access parts that are maybe difficult to put into words, both for the artist and the recipient. So that's right. really amazing that that happened. Yeah. All right. On that note, there's one final question. Next piece you'd like to learn? Hmm, that's a great question. This is not really Spitfire anymore, is it? If I'm taking this long to answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I called it Spitfire, but some of the questions here are a little bit more pensive. So yeah, there are pieces that I want to learn in preparation for a hypothetical second outreach project, also focused on women composers. Some pieces by Amy Beach, there's a sonata by Sophia Eckhart Gramata. But I think in this pandemic period, and with no clear idea of when I can do these projects again, I've kind of reverted to the things that I've always wanted to learn and never got around to. So I'm working on a Rachmaninoff etude that doesn't get played quite as often. And it's not an etude in the sense that people tend to think Rachmaninoff etudes are. So this is Opus 39, number four, the B minor etude. So I don't know if that's counted as what I would like to learn next, because that's what I'm working on now. But yeah. <laughs> this can be a loose translation of the question, but... I would very much like to play the Fanny Hensel trio at some point, but because it's a chamber piece requires a lot more logistics to happen, so... Right. Dang it, COVID! <laughs> but anyway, you survived. Yes, thankfully. And you too. Well... <laughs> <laughs> I guess I never considered myself needing to survive through the Spitfire questions, but... Oh, I thought you meant, like, the pandemic. Oh! Yes, I see how that's confusing. No, I meant, <laughs> I meant well, we are still surviving the pandemic, but... Yeah. I meant literally, you know, that you have now completed the Spitfire question section of the podcast. All right. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Francis, tell me, how did you get into piano? How did you decide to go into this as a profession and lay the brick road? So when I was young, I got put into music classes, like quite a lot of kids are in Singapore. And my mom really loves music and she wanted us all to at least be able to experience it. And I was fortunate enough that my sister, my older sister, was already playing piano a lot. I was surrounded by music at home and I think hearing her practice all the time gave me an advantage that not everybody has that I can develop my oral skills and 
I can learn by example. I can be explore music together in many ways. So yeah, I started going to group classes when I was really young, just about to turn four, and then went into individual lessons. Was lucky enough to go to a school that took music very seriously, that gave us theory and not so much oral classes, but mostly theory classes and some music history classes as it related to the exams. In Singapore, we tend to many people take the Associated Board of Royal Schools of Music examinations, which are these graded tests that run from grades one to eight, and then their diplomas afterwards. And yeah, if they are taught well and if they are done properly, they give a very good holistic education because they don't test just how well you play your pieces, but they ensure that you're learning your skills at a pedal, at a graded rate, and also test your oral skills and your sight reading capabilities.、Mm-hmm. I was blessed with a pretty solid education when I was in Singapore, and when I was almost fourteen, I went to a specialist music school in the United Kingdom called the Purcell School.、Mm-hmm. It's a school that you audition to get into, and it is basically a I guess the closest you would get to it in the states is something like Interlochen or、mm-hmm. schools like Walnut Hill and Interlochen. That basically everybody there is in the arts in some form, but we are still carrying on academic classes, and、sure. we're just kind of all in the same boat. And of course, if you can bring all these musicians together, then you get to do things like chamber music and orchestra.、Mm-hmm. I was very fortunate at a Purcell school to have studied with Rustam Harudinov, who teaches at the Royal Academy of Music, and this was quite common for my school because it was only half an hour outside of London that we had a lot of teachers who taught in London. And traveled out to us maybe once or twice a week, and I learned a lot about music from him. And mo- most importantly, the point of it all. Sure, it was pretty clear that I liked it as a kid, but I might not have had awareness of it. I think my parents saw that I took、sure. to it well, and I had maybe a natural relative amount of talent, and yeah,、mm-hmm. and a na- natural instinct for it. But it was with my teacher at Purcell. He really impressed upon me that you need to, as a performer, if you want to make it, you need to have something to say, right? Like it's not about hitting the right notes; it's about just making meaning. Through what you did, there's a message so, behind everything that you, right, right. That if you are playing and you don't have something that you're trying to say, and especially something that's personal to you or something that's unique to you, then the performance is empty.、Mm-hmm. So, in addition to impressing upon me the importance of expression or the importance that there is something you're conveying through your art, it's not just making the surface look good.、Mm-hmm. In addition to that, he also fixed a lot of technical issues that he had and gave me the abilities to continue. There were certain things that if he hadn't fixed, I really wouldn't be playing today. I so I think that's. Plus the inspiration that he gave, plus the confidence that he gave me that I've been teaching you for a while, and like I believe you do have something unique to offer. I think that was what encouraged me enough to consider going to college for piano.、Mm-hmm. And at that time, I really loved school, and I, like this is still true. I love learning, and I know not everybody does well in systematized education, but I liked it, and I did fine at it. And so when I was thinking about where to go for undergrad, I considered getting a bachelor of arts degree in musicology.、Mm-hmm. This happened to a few kids from my. School, the ones who really liked academia, that they would go to Oxford or Cambridge,、mm-hmm. but continue to take instrumental lessons on the side, and then afterwards do a master of music and performance. I see. So I thought I should at least investigate those options. So I visited Cambridge, which is a beautiful place and obviously a great school. But I realized through visiting that it really is on your own terms. Like if you want to continue keeping up your performance, and if you want to keep up the playing aspect of being a musician, you really have to find the time to do it by yourself. Got it. And to a certain An extent of finance to do it by yourself too. When I realized all of that, I just felt, you know, I would just miss playing too much.、Mm-hmm. In some ways, the way I got into attending a conservatory was not so much of I really, really want to do this, but more that I don't think I would be happy without it. It's more of an, it was an essential part of my life at the time, and I was very fortunate to have heard about the Bard College Conservatory of Music, which wasn't as famous then as it is now. That I was able to continue my love of things other than. 
music while training to be a musician at a high level. And I was so fortunate that I got to study with Peter Serkin, rest in peace. Mm -hmm. And I think his artistry and who he was as a musician was really just such an inspiration to me too. I think sometimes in classical music, there's this very strange hero worshipping thing going on or that there is somehow a chasm between the people who are so famous and releasing records and performing all the time versus us music students who are just trying to make it. Right. And I mean, of course, this is not true. Of This is not the attitude taken by a lot of incredible artists, but we don't know that until we see it for ourselves, right? And the amount of generosity and that he being who he is and having such authority, not just because he played really well, but because he cared enough to do his research and look at Beethoven's sketchbooks, look at what Czerny wrote, like all of those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. it, it was always very informed performance, extremely thoughtful, very self-effacing. It was really never about what he wanted to do, but what he thought the composer wanted and what he believed was right. Mm -hmm. And so one of my memories of him is that I listened to his recording of the last, I think, six piano sonatas by Beethoven on a graph 40 piano. It is one of the most amazing things I've heard. And I also listened to his recordings of Diabelli Variations, which he is very well known for. I don't remember which one it was. It was either the Diabelli or Opus 111 that I studied it with him and then I brought the CD to him because I wanted him to sign it for me. And he signed it with something like Francis. I enjoy hearing how you play Beethoven. And for someone who is right. as established as he is to say something like that. And it wasn't just that one time. It, it was every lesson that he didn't like it if anything he said to be taken as like authoritative in some ways unless it was like you need to read what Cherny wrote or you need to read what Beethoven did in his sketchbooks. When it came from him he kind of shied away from getting us to write it down in stone. Mm -hmm. He didn't like it when people recorded his lessons at least by the time he was teaching me mm -hmm. and I'm the kind of person who takes copious notes and I would write down basically everything he said and he wasn't sometimes when oh don't, don't write that down like yeah. that kind of thing. <laughs> So yeah, and the other very clear memory I have is he was playing Bartok Three, the piano concerto with our orchestra. And once I heard him practicing from behind a closed door, and so the last movement is this boisterous, difficult, you know, very lively 3-8 piece, kind of dance-like movement. And he's played this so many times, and he recorded it when he was really young. It's something that he could do with his eyes closed, but yet he was practicing it at the slowest speed you could have possibly imagined, mm -hmm. just so that he could really hear every single sound. It was such a privilege to hear how people like that get to the performances that they do. I mean, sure. obviously a lot of it is in his head and I have no idea, but the amount of care that he took with it, even even though he could probably play it without batting an eyelid. Yeah, sorry, this was a big tangent, but okay. I, I really do miss him and I couldn't believe I had the privilege to study with him. And then past that, getting a master's in music was always part of the plan because as much as I loved school, I wanted to be able to experience a point where I was just focusing on playing uh, or rather just focusing on music. And so it was kind of natural for me to go into a master's degree. I mean, nowadays, most people do have master's degrees if right. you're a musician anyway, but to go into the doctorate, I think was a decision I made because of my reflections on who I wanted to be in my career, that being a competition winner was never part of what I was interested in. I mean, I think some people are built to be competition winners and some are not. And I never thought that I was a competition winner. And Can I take a I... moment to actually dissect the typical paths of a mm -hmm. pianist in classical music? Sure. Because for string players, there's chamber music, orchestra, pedagogy, and those are kind of the three. I guess you can be a soloist as a string player as well, right? Yeah. But pretty rare. But for pianists, it's more 
more like either doing the, the competition circuit, you're teaching, getting a DMA or teaching. You can be a collaborative pianist. Mm -hmm. So you would maybe, you know, attach yourself to another instrumentalist and be their pianist for their solo recitals and such. Am I missing one? Some people go to orchestra route, but it's not as common. Yes. That's true. Because yeah. there's only really, there's only yeah. a few pieces in the canon of orchestral music that require piano. And those are really important pieces, like Stravinsky's Petrushka, amongst others. But there's fewer spots available than the string player, for instance. Yeah. And I think also not all orchestras have a resident. Right. They may just kind of on the side hire yes. someone as a ringer is what we call them. But yeah, so I just wanted to clarify because there are a little bit of a difference there with being a pianist versus being a string player or woodwind player percussionist. There is another route that you didn't mention, which is vocal coaching. So you'll be working primarily singers often in opera settings too. Mm -hmm. It's a very different field in some ways. I mean, of course, we all have to share the same fundamental things like having good technique, being good listeners, being good chamber musicians, but it's a I very different experience that you need to be a vocal coach. I also should say you could also be a pianist in a piano trio as well, like Monaco. Or quartets Presley. or quintets. So yeah, right. right. So I you're saying that you were reflecting on your possibilities and you being in the competition circuit was something that just wasn't really fitting with you as your identity with music. Right. And not fitting and not appealing. And also just being a concert pianist, not that I claim to know anything about this lifestyle, but from what I read or what I imagined, it can get very lonely. It's not the same as being in a string quartet and moving around with like three other people, as difficult as that can be at times. Not only is it does it consist a lot of you having very little sleep, getting there, having just that much time to try the piano, unless you can afford to bring the piano with you, which never, almost never happens, but that you can just about afford enough time to try the piano or play the concert and leave again. And also the fact that you would be repeating the same things over and over again. And to me, like that's just not as much what I'm interested in. Of course, I want perfection of what I play, of course, or strive for perfection of what I play and to make it more consistent and to make sure that it comes across well each time I do it. But to have to rehash a program over and over for a concert tour is not something that I thought was mm -hmm. interesting. Mm -hmm. But what I really love doing as a performer more than anything is collaborating and chamber music in all kinds of different ways. And I figured if I could aim for a job that allowed me to teach, which I also love doing, but also be surrounded by colleagues who I can collaborate with and put on performances, both for the public and to educate the students at the school. That sounded a lot more meaningful to me personally. And that's why I decided to get a doctorate because it would give me more options of how I could pursue that path. Sure. So then that brings me to today. So Yeah. So what are you doing today, Francis? I am currently living in Singapore, where I'm originally from, and I want to explore my life here, both mm -hmm. in my personal life with my family and in career. And it's an exciting time to be back because when I was very young, there wasn't quite as much going on in the arts yet. But I think with the government support and with a lot of artists now coming back to Singapore and contributing in all kinds of different fields, that it's become a really rich and interesting experience. Well, a rich and interesting time to be an artist and also still with enough space for people to contribute more sure. because we can always have more art and different kinds of art. I didn't used to think that I wanted to be the kind of person who started things and got in on the ground and tried to you know, build something because I recognize how challenging that is. But over the years, I have come around to realize that there is so much meaning in trying to shape art in people's lives or to bring art to people's lives. I feel like I'm really making a difference rather than just being one more person mm -hmm. who is qualified to do 
doing, you know. Sure. And I think for you, it's from where you were originally from that it's even more enriching mm -hmm. and that you can incorporate your family and not have to sacrifice. Sometimes I feel like as musicians, we can't always choose where we live mm -hmm. based on whatever job we get. And so at some level, you end up having to sacrifice something or the other. So it's, it's really beautiful that you're able to go back to be with your family again and also just be you and enrich the community in Singapore. Yeah. Part of it is also just for the culture. Like despite the amount of time I spent at abroad, I have realized more and more that there are parts of me that will remain culturally Singaporean, and I'm very happy with that. But I think part of me also just wanted to go home in that kind of aspect as well. That's I was going to make a stupid joke and be like, it's the recapitulation of your life. That sounds kind of ominous somehow. Like, <laughs> No! Because the development section was Sorry, you I'm, going to Yeah, but I'm thinking and... of, I, I get that part, but I'm thinking of it more in like a proportional way. Unless you have a Brahmsian beta. There's a coda. You could have a coda at the end. Yes, but I don't coda. want to have sudden dramatic, I mean, I say this and I'm sure it will happen, but sudden dramatic changes that postpone the ending of my life. And yet, if I didn't do that, then my life proportionally would end very soon. So. Oh, okay. For, I was not, <laughs> it's not so literal, Francis. <laughs> All right. Well. Maybe this, this is a is false recapitulation. Works. I don't know. That would imply that <laughs> I then have a big move afterwards. I don't, right? You never know, right? But yeah, I mean, I think prompting my move to Singapore, there are many, many different factors, not all of which I would like to get into. But I think I learned a lot about myself over the years and finding out what my priorities are. And also, I think there are people who are good with uprooting all the time and who, you know, go out and conquer the world. They're okay with going from city to city every few years. But I think it takes a certain kind of personality to do that. And I'm not sure that would make me very happy so that's what I'm seeking now to find a way to establish myself and settle and really grow something because I think that's what I'm naturally better at doing and I think that's partly why I was so grateful to have stayed at Rice for the six years that I did. Growing yourself in a place takes time and takes being settled and having people around you that get you and care and that you care about too and I think that really did wonders for me. Especially since I had spent four years in one country and then during my undergrad I did an exchange semester in Germany that I hadn't really lived in one place solidly for four years or for more than four years until Houston since I was like a tween. I think that was pretty important yeah. to me. Shall we take a break? Sure. Okay, we'll be right back. Welcome back from the break. So before the break, I had such great snuggles with Sushi and she's the best, but now I'm full of cat hair. So <laughs> it's fine. We can proceed forward and talk about Francis and your fascination with television shows. Right. Do discuss. Sure. I'm a very normal person in my <laughs> other... <laughs> when I'm not doing things that are like directly related. Okay, fine. You have to laugh so much about that. I mean, I don't think there's any, by saying that despite Patty's raucous laughter, it's not, <laughs> I don't think I have any particularly unique or interesting hobbies, but I do think that, like sometimes when people ask you what hobbies you have, people want to hear that you're doing particularly intellectual things or things that are considered intellectual or very productive or amazing and things like that. But I think that sometimes pop culture isn't given the credit it deserves. Just because something is popular doesn't mean that it's not something you can learn a lot from and, you know, have intellectual conversations about or gain something from. And I, I do think that TV 
has changed a lot. Yes. To cater to that kind of crowd. And mm -hmm. I think that the amount of thought you put into any hobbies you do, like whether they appear more brainless or quotidian than other things, the amount to which you engage is really up to you. It's up to the audience, right? Mm -hmm. Like how you think about a TV show. And, and that's a beautiful thing about like TV shows and films and like other kinds of things that we would call being in pop culture, that how much you want to engage with it. There's a whole spectrum. So you can just watch a TV show and think, oh, well, that person is funny or that was an interesting story. But you can also try to think about it more and consider it on a more meta level, which some shows deal with head on. And I think those are the shows I tend to gravitate towards the most. So like, okay, one of the shows I'm rewatching right now and very glad that I can rewatch is Community, huh. which is one of the most self-referential shows I've ever seen. And that's the kind of comedy I'm drawn to the most. This kind of art that exhibits self-awareness, mm -hmm. right? And I, I think that kind of self-consciousness or dealing with what the audience is actually perceiving within the show, that is really interesting to me. And I don't think comedy used to be like that at all. And so like what we were saying about TV evolving, I think all the people who work in the smartest comedies and the smartest dramas, they are very aware of how savvy the audience is getting mm -hmm. and that you have to keep up with that, right? And that there are certain things, the relationship between a show and the tropes that you find in TV has to be so carefully negotiated because there are always people who like a certain amount of predictability in their TV shows, right? Especially with procedurals that you know that the good thing will always happen at the end. Mm -hmm. And you can maybe do some interesting things on how you get there, but some people like the kinds of shows that give them comfort because on some level, whether they acknowledge it or not, they know what's going to happen. But there are also the shows that try very hard to continue challenging their viewers because they are aware that the viewers are aware. Mm -hmm. My main point is that pop culture is given a bad rap and sometimes, not always, obviously because people do like it, that's why it's popular, but also that we, there's so much you can learn from taking different perspectives on it. And that's why I'm glad too that there are all these podcasts about the shows that I love so much and that you hear behind the scenes things, especially from the people who aren't the actors. As grateful as I am to hear what the actors have to say about their experience on the show, and you do learn a lot about their process as well, but to hear about things that we might never even have considered, like what the crew bring to it, and especially people like the art department and how much they put into it, especially for shows that have such a good working environment behind them, like The Good Place. So mm -hmm. like how much they contribute to the show in ways that only the most observant and committed viewers would see. Right. That everybody has a space for their art within this gigantic conglomerate that is a TV show and, and how much goes into that. Mm -hmm. So I think those kinds of behind the scenes things are really interesting to me as well. And yeah, I mean, I listened to Office Ladies podcast mm -hmm. with Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey. Mm -hmm. And to me, you know, I love watching The Office, even though I do think some of the things are a bit dated these days, but mm -hmm. that was just the comedy of that era, for sure. Something that I did not realize was so thought through, like almost too much thought through, was the Jim and Pam storyline mm -hmm. and their romance and how it was depicted on that show to then make it, you know, one of the best love stories I think any TV show has ever produced. Mm -hmm. And it's just sort of the efforts, the number of questions that they've had to ask what Pam's hair is going to look like. Mm -hmm. Is Jim going to face outward or inward towards his talking head? Just the delicateness of etching out that storyline is just, I mean, that's just one of the many things that I am learning from listening to the 
podcast that there is a lot more behind the scenes. There's a lot more behind the music stand, but there, there, you know, there's a lot that's unspoken about. There's a lot that, you know, sometimes just watching a TV show, you just take something at face value, but there's, there's a lot of intricacies behind it. Right. And I think, thank you for like basically summing up what I was trying to say in about (laughs) a rambly five minutes that, yeah, I mean, that we can very easily write off things as being formulaic. No, 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 that, that it's popular and like, yeah, everybody likes this and like that we can dismiss it as superficial just because it gets so much attention. I mean, of course, this doesn't apply to things that are lauded for their depth. But I guess I'm mostly responding to the pressure that I sometimes feel when people ask me, so what I do in my free time, to tell them that I'm reading copiously and, and I, I don't know, reading philosophy and reading all these like very serious books. And of course, those things are important and I wish I did more of them. But what I'm trying to say is that you can get a lot out of watching things that are dismissed sometimes as pop culture if you look at it the right way mm-hmm. and if you look at it with a critical eye and so it's your approach to it right and like I think with anything if you spend enough time on it and you're thoughtful about it there are things you can uncover I mean this is very silly but like that's how I feel about Bach they're the same notes on the page nothing will change about how he wrote it down but how you think about it grows over time and I think that that happens if you're a critical thoughtful person mm-hmm. which I think hopefully we can all strive to be more like that you can apply that to anything in your life. And we shouldn't decry something just because, I mean, even with pop music, that just because it's on the top 50 mm-hmm. hit doesn't mean that it's not worth exploring on a sure. more intellectual, serious level. I'm rambling again. But anyway, I think some of it is just, you know, self-justification of why I spend my time doing what I do. But basically you're saying there's nothing wrong with enjoying a Netflix night and binge watching a television show. Yeah, and that there is actually a lot to explore and especially when we have the help of people who were there. And what you were saying about how carefully they plan it out. I love a lot of things about the Office Ladies podcast, but I think it's Greg Daniels that they quoted as saying, if it's someone else, I apologize, but that each character has to advance like 5%. Yes. That you can't do it too much, right? Mm-hmm. That like, mm-hmm. we need to be able to grow with a character and you're threading this very fine line for the audience of something that they are comfortable with and you can build upon, but also challenging them. Mm-hmm. That's reflective of the whole TV industry as well. I mean, at least the ones who are consciously trying to produce something that is new and original. Right. And also like, with regards to planning, I recently was sent a link by a good friend to Dan Harmon's I think it's Tumblr account where the, and Dan Harmon is the creator of community and he posted these pictures of the behind the scenes planning for one of the most important episodes which is I think it's called Advanced Chaos Theory where they're talking about the different realities that you can explore with, by rolling a dice so I couldn't zoom in on everything because it's all kind of small but part of it is him planning the episode's arc but also just seeing the kind of mind that goes into I mean him in the writer's room the, the amount of planning that goes into making an episode as complexes that happen and it's so conceptual right it's so easy for us to just consume things on the screen and say and then the person said this and then like you can it's easy for us to think that all that happened was they wrote a script right. but that's really not what it was at all right mm-hmm. that there's always so much concept planning behind especially for the more complicated shows that there is so much that goes on before the words are actually set on the page mm-hmm. and it's not just people sitting down and writing a story from beginning to end yeah. i mean this to me is resonating exactly about what i know about you as a collaborator is mm-hmm. fundamentally take any piece of music you put so much thought behind every note every gesture every phrase and harmony you all those things that it's basically what you're kind of saying about Bach but as you as a performer you do all that work behind it and then execute it let's say on in a performance and maybe the audience has no idea how much preparation work was put into that performance and that they can just write it off as like oh well that's just another Bach invention or whatever you're playing mm-hmm. but you take your perspective 
perspective of how you approach music and you apply it to the television world and appreciate the product more based on your appreciation of their work. Mm. Is that fair? Yeah, but I think it's not so much that I do this in music and then I do it elsewhere. I think it's more that my approach to music is just a reflection of who I am, right? So like, it's just... I well, that's what approach. I was... I guess I was trying to say that. Right. I, I don't know. Maybe I, I just... Of like what I know about you as a friend and as a... Right, right. But no, I don't, I, I don't I really want to put words in your mouth either. Like, you know. No, you're not. I, I think I just wanted to make a very subtle point that it's not that I did this through music and then I... No, no, I understand also. that. It's just that, yeah, it, right. it all comes from the same place, right? And right. I mean, to me, the important part is that like, that's why the music I make is an expression of who I am. But the interesting thing about what you bring up, like, I really appreciate your kind words, but I also think you're giving me too much credit. Like, I think <laughs> a lot of the thoughtfulness that because of the nature of music and the way I have grown up with it... I don't think I'm as conscious about it. Right. I don't think I'm necessarily aware and it happens in this kind of like background level. Well, because it has to be partially improvised and partially planned, right? You can't ever execute a performance with right. everything super, super planned out. Part of it is also the live aspect of that. With the TV show, I think that that's where similarly they plan things out. But when at least when I think about The Office, yeah. for instance, there's a lot of improvisation. There's a lot of ability to kind of just see what the actors are going to do and I think that's kind of how it might relate back to what we do practically yeah I think maybe I'm responding mostly to your thing about understanding what chords are happening and stuff like that like because I really do believe in the power and the interest of theory mm -hmm. and in the most basic sense of trying to understand how music works like the whole point of theory is that we come together to create a common language because without language you can't think mm -hmm. so like we need to be able to put words to these abstract concepts to be able to discuss them further and push how much we know about them further. Mm -hmm. I really believe in the power of being able to understand what you do as a performer, even if you're not consciously thinking and then this is a 164 chord that resolves or 564 chord, whatever it is. Like, even if you're not thinking about it being like an augmented 6 chord that resolves a certain way or I want to believe that even if I don't spend the time analyzing each piece that I play the way that I would in theory assignments, all those kinds of workings out still operate on the subconscious level. Mm-hmm. And if need be, I can pull them out. And this is especially important in chamber music. When everybody is trying to come together to decide one thing with so many different opinions, like we have to be able to have, firstly, ways of talking about it. And secondly, ways to back up what we're saying or to let the music speak to you. And by so doing, try to come up with something that is more convincing for everybody. Mm -hmm. And if we don't have tools to understand what is happening and to communicate it, then that part of chamber music is really very difficult. Mm -hmm. But I guess what I'm mostly trying to say is that even if I don't, as a performer, sit down and come up with a cogent analysis of a piece in writing, I do believe that having gone through that experience of working out other pieces kind of intrinsically informs how you approach the pieces that you perform. You make a beautiful point that trying to understand how things are put together is an approach that I take with TV shows too. Right. Well, that's why I'm saying it's yeah. the appreciation factor of it. Francis, it's like your MO is to look at something and try to understand what's happening in behind the scenes and mm -hmm. that only helps your appreciation yeah, or absolutely. the product. So, I mean, it, it sounds like you've been mentioning TV shows that are more on the comedic side, sort of like the really fast, witty language and jokes that are throwbacks will come back later in the episode or later in the season or something mm -hmm. like that. Is that generally your kind of flavor of TV show that you like? 
Yeah. In addition to being able to appreciate the finer things about what goes into making the show, at the end of the day, I also just want to be entertained. Right. right? And, and that's like, the whole... Just, right? I mean, what you were mentioning before the podcast about escaping in a certain way, mm -hmm. I think that that is a big part of it. And there is nothing wrong with that. I actually would almost want to say it's not really escaping, as although we've talked, you know, people talk about escapism in video games or TV mm -hmm. or movies or whatever. I like to think of it as transportation, mm -hmm. being transported to a different world, yeah, a different realm. Works better. What are your like go-to TV shows that you would recommend to people? I think my favorite comedy of all time is still Scrubs. I don't know if you noticed about me. I might have mentioned it before. No, I know this about you. Yeah. yeah. Most people find out very soon after they meet me because I watched it so many times and not only watching it, but kind of playing it in the background. It was a very calming device because as musicians, I think we are trained to listen to music in a very engaged way. And I mean, of course, this happens with people who aren't professional musicians as well. I'm, I'm not trying to say that only musicians listen to music like this, but... No, but we're musicians talking about this, so just say... As, right. You know. But in any case, like I find it hard to listen to music when I want to wind down because it just stimulates too much. But what is very calming to me is to listen to a TV show that I've put on so many times that I can basically know what the next line of dialogue is going to be. Yeah, I do the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so Scrubs was that for me for many years and it still is when I really need it to be that. And also, I mean, the stuff that we were mentioning about trying to dig underneath the many layers, I feel like Scrubs offers me that. And I always have thought that with Bill Lawrence's shows that there's a very specific kind of humor that you don't see elsewhere. And I think it really appeals to some people and maybe some people prefer different kinds of humor. I mean, right. humor is such a gigantic field, but yeah. it's just so incredible to me. So yeah, that's so scrubs. But also community has been I've been watching it much more recently and it's starting to pose quite like a challenge to favorite show status. Mm -hmm. I don't think scrubs will ever be usurped, honestly, but sure. <laughs> Yeah, community for how meta and how self-aware it goes, I think is really incredible. I mean, the casts are all really amazing and the characters are so interestingly fleshed out. But that the show, I mean, the office ladies mentioned this too, that the show is so willing and so daring to take these episodes that are so far away from their normal episode that they bring them into worlds of animation or stop motion or right that they are doing these like what they consider one-off episodes that happen so often that you can almost not really consider them one-off episodes anymore because each episode is so unique. So yeah, there's that. I do watch drama sometimes, but I tend to prefer the ones that have comedy aspects in them as well. House is one of my favorite dramas because of that. I mean, I think the show not changed, but grew throughout the series where it became darker and more serious and dealt with issues that they didn't deal with as much in the first three seasons, which is what happens with any show. But yeah, that they were able to explore so many interesting things and dark issues while still having people who could inject comedy they needed to. Yeah, it was just great writing. What about reality TV, Francis? I recently watched all of The Masked Singer, which they just concluded their third season. And I got into it partly because I had heard about it so much from the Darkest Timeline podcast, which is hosted by Ken Jeong and Joel McHale from Community. And Ken Jeong is a judge on The Masked Singer. Okay. And I watched it initially because I was curious to know what the show was about. I've seen ads for it on my streaming services and that they were able to get some, I don't want to give any spoilers, but they were able to get some very high profile people onto mm -hmm. the show. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted to just see Ken Jeong be very comedic and Ken Jeong, yeah. do, do the stuff that he does so well. Mm -hmm. But then I got really hooked because it does get very interesting. Like, I, I don't think I know enough about pop culture to recognize all these celebrities. And it's really amazing how the judges are keyed in enough that they can basically guess anyone in any 
any field because the mass singer isn't just about getting actors in right it involves politicians or actual professional singers or rappers or like just athletes and it's interesting on that front too to like try to guess along with the judges and with the audience they have done a good job with production as well that the choreography and the costuming is really quite impressive i watch reality tv i guess partly for the point of the show but also partly for the people who host it so i watched making it for the amy poehler and the government i mean i also really love watching people make crafts and do these mm -hmm. incredible artistic things i also watch lego masters for will arnett and for how much i love lego and how amazing the things people can make are okay so I think the thing that annoys me about reality TV competitions is the very transparent way they dangle cliffhangers. Yeah, sure. And it just takes so much time and I get really impatient. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And thankfully, in streaming services, you can just kind of fast forward. But, but what about like the point. British baking show? I mean, that's like... I don't think I'm as into food shows as most people seem to be. Oh. I should probably be. And it is beautiful to see. I used to watch Ace of Cakes. I think I just don't have enough patience. <laughs> What's the most surprising TV show that you got hooked on to? I think I was surprised that I got into Mass Singer, honestly. I don't know. That's a hard question. Maybe Jane the Virgin, just because I didn't know that much about it before Fair. I started watching it. I was recommended to it by a friend. I mean, it actually hits a lot of points that I love anyway, right? That's that true. Yeah. Comedic, but I think the thing I really loved about it is, again, the self-referentialness of it. Yeah, though. they're constantly making fun of telenovelas the whole time. They see it more as an homage. And uh, that's such a big part of the comedy as well, right? They're very obviously using these tropes. Some characters say something about like, well, who would ever, who would be insane enough to try this? And then they like cut to the scene where like one of the characters shows up, like that kind of thing. Right. But that they do it in such an intelligent and conscious way that mm -hmm. you really enjoy it. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Another show I would recommend. Any little things that I maybe forgot to ask about with your passions for television and the craft of it? Not necessarily something that you didn't ask, but something I wanted to mention is that I guess it goes back to pop culture in general, that not only is it just a source of entertainment to me as it is to everybody else, but I think being involved in pop culture or at least having an awareness of it gives you an ability to communicate or like to find common ground with other people which I have found so so helpful especially when I'm teaching my students mm -hmm. I mean for them most of the time they're kids so they don't necessarily watch the TV shows that I watch but I do love musicals and I do like Disney movies a lot so I watched Frozen 2 mostly for myself but I told my students jokingly that it was for research and it really has helped a lot these are songs that they listen to all the time and they are really great songs mm -hmm. sung really well really beautifully produced on screen and having knowledge of songs like this is so helpful when you're trying to you know make something relatable to them in addition to just being enjoyable for me yeah i think sometimes musicians suffer from this kind of blanket dismissal of popular music which i think is just so harmful and so silly too like it just contributes to this elitist view of classical music as this protected ivory tower that you need to be inducted into and that's really not what music is and i guess for me that's my own way of dealing with the stigma that really stupidly exists in music sometimes that people can somehow think that there's this misguided notion that classical musicians sometimes have that their music is better than others and it's not right it's just fulfilling different functions and having slightly different goals maybe right but it doesn't make any music less and it doesn't mean that other music isn't as deserving of your appreciation even if the appreciation is done in a different way and i mean of course you know this because you do covers of songs that you love right yeah. and it has certain me so well to listen to the music of the day because I think if you're not really connecting with 
what's happening out there. How are you supposed to connect with your audience? Right. So fair. You know, I could not have asked for a better segue into the final two questions mm -hmm. because I mean, I'm going to ask the question again in case you wanted to provide another answer, but you basically just answered the first question, which is what in your opinion is the most common misconception of classical musicians or the classical music world? I guess what I said earlier kind of deals with that question. Yeah. Nice job. You predicted my question. <laughs> After all the impact that COVID has done to classical music, what do you think is something positive that will enhance and carry on in our profession? I think musicians have had to very seriously consider what it means to reach an audience. It's a difficult thing for me to think about because I've so highly prized the live experience. And I do think that even with live streaming, nothing comes close. Like, I mean, and I apply this to my own life too, that I sometimes find it hard to listen to recordings because to me, experiencing music is being surrounded by it and hearing it and like seeing it come alive. And to me, I have never really enjoyed recording myself anyway, because I think that the nature of it demands different things from you. And I'm not so much interested in that as communicating with an audience. Even if there are mistakes, that's not the point, right? But whereas mistakes kind of show up in a more disturbing way in recordings or distracting way, I should say. I want to believe that the impossibility of having live performances safely is creating awareness of the power of them or the importance of having them. I want to believe that it's true. The more pessimistic side of me thinks that this is an exacerbation of the stuff that has already been happening in music where with this kind of consumer culture where we can just stream anything we want at any point, people sometimes don't recognize the need anymore of live performances. And the fact that music is so easily accessible and available online or through mechanical devices sometimes lets people not even consider going to live concerts because they don't see the point. That's my concern. It can be both a positive and a negative thing, but that's my concern with the pandemic that we are losing this part even more. Like it can go both ways, right? But at the same time that, yeah, musicians who might not have done as much live streaming before or found ways of reaching people who aren't directly in their vicinity, that they are finding ways of reaching more people and having to be more creative and break the traditional paths of what they think their career should be. I think that part is very positive. And I, on a teaching front too, that I tried to do this pre-lockdown as well, that so much of the way we teach is more effective if the student learns to be independent. And I think now more than ever, it's such an important thing that they know how to find measure numbers by themselves without me pointing to learn how to section out things and to also see the importance of understanding concepts, right? That if I ask you to find a half note in a measure, you would really need to know what a half note is. And yeah, establishing this kind of language of communication is even more important when we're teaching remotely. Definitely. I mean, I've also been kind of shocked in some of my students, just their literacy of music, which is the backbone or just exactly mm -hmm. like maybe the first things I was learning as a kid were not really taught. And so when I try to tell them, oh, can you start at that note? They'll not know what I'm talking about. And so mm -hmm. then I'll say, okay, fourth finger on the D string. I want to hear a G. Or can you go to this position on the second finger? And they're kind of searching and finding it. It is kind of like, wow, like I didn't necessarily start with these students. However, I'm not necessarily blaming their previous mm -hmm. teachers either. It's just, there's always going to be a blind spot in our education. Mm -hmm. And I think the goal of any teacher should be to create their students to be as self-sufficient as fast as possible mm -hmm. so that we are then unnecessary and then we can move on to more people to help right. educate, right? So online Zoom lessons definitely have changed the approach for many music educators out there. And mm -hmm. as much as there are 
struggles and as much as there are learning curves along the way, it's definitely, I guess, opening up certain, as I would say, blind spots that maybe we had as teachers or maybe our students had as students. Yeah, I think the push towards teaching yourself is really very important. And I think for me, it's been gratifying, as difficult as it is for me to not be able to play simultaneously with them, or even if I do, it's in a very strange way from my end where they can be playing together with me, but I'm just half a beat ahead of them all the time because mm-hmm. of the lag. It's been gratifying that in some ways, I don't think I've had to change so much of how I teach because I demonstrate as little as possible because I want them to be able to figure it out by themselves and not let people who have really great oral skills get away with not reading and stuff like that. There are definitely a lot of challenges that I've dealt with and thankfully the students and parents have all been really great at dealing with these challenges together. Flexible, yeah. The funniest thing that I found about all of this is that with at least some of my students, having stickers still means a lot to them. Even though (laughs) the way it works is that I write down notes and I put the sticker on my notes that I then take pictures of and send it to them. Right. And yet they are ridiculously excited when they can get stickers. I mean, I would be pretty excited. Even though it's just a picture on their phone and I still technically have the sticker in my head. It's not the physical nature of it. As I told the student's mom, it's that in their hearts, they know it's theirs. They earned it. Even if I I haven't. Yes. But in their heart, they understand the abstract ownership of it. Totally. But yes. So nice. But I mean, I'm glad that I've been able to at least remotely teaching some of them because Mm -hmm. I think providing a semblance of normality in their lives is so important. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And also just to, you know, keep them musically engaged and for them not to forget stuff. If I had given up teaching the kids in the hopes that this would be over back in March, they would have lost out on so many months and forgotten so much of what they learned before. So I'm glad that teachers have found a way to keep going despite all the challenges. Right. Francis, is there any place that we can reach you to keep tabs of what you're up to? Yeah, you can go to my website, francisleepiano.com. Francis spelled with an E. Great. And if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please subscribe and leave hopefully a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It helps this podcast reach more people and it makes me feel pretty good. You can also give feedback at our email address, hydenmusicstand at gmail.com if there's something you'd like to suggest or just say hi. Sharing with your friends and family is a free way to support this podcast. And if you'd like, you may also visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash hideandmusicstand to, you know, support me and all my editing hours of creating each episode each week. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at Hide and Music Stand to access more content. There's also a Spotify playlist available with all the pieces we discussed on the show. You can find it in the description of each episode. Thanks, Francis, for being here. Thanks for having me, Patty. It was really fun. Yeah. And thanks for listening. Say bye, sushi. <coughs>